I'm super proud to announce that AIFTP detection is now available to all Train Road subscribers. Now, what this feature does is allows you to click one button, and then our AI comes in, looks at your entire training history, both indoor and outdoor, with Train Road or without, and compares that against our 150 million ride data set to figure out what trends and patterns are similar to then give you an FTP. Now, a really cool part of this is that you don't have to do capacitive efforts or an all-out effort in order to get an FTP. Sometimes you might have seen on the internet where they will detect your FTP, but you have to do a 20-minute all-out effort somewhere in your training in order for it to work. Because we have such a huge data set, what we're able to do is you could train only sweet spot, only endurance training. You don't have to do anything above threshold, and we can actually predict with a pretty high accuracy what your FTP will be on that day. Now, how do we know this works? What we did is we validated this data against people's workouts post changing their FTP. So there's a few different ways that could happen. One is someone could type in their FTP themselves. They could do the eight or 20 minute test. They could do the ramp test, or they could use AI FTP detection. So we put AI FTP detection in early access, which is like an open beta about nine months ago. And since then, we have 22,000 people sign up for it. And what we did is when they use that feature, we looked at their next workout and saw, did they struggle on it? Were they able to achieve it? Did they quit early? And then also afterwards, how did it feel? Was the workout too easy or too hard? And we can combine that data and we can categorize it between self-selected FTPs, the 20 minute test, the eight minute test, the ramp test and AFTP detection. And what we saw is AIFTP detection is the best way to detect your FTP out of those ones. So if you want to use it today, please go to trainerroad.com and it's available anywhere the ramp test is, or you can go to your profile on the website and click the button AIFTP detection. If you have any questions or comments about what we should do to improve this feature, please post them down below. Thanks everyone. Talk to you later. Big day for us here at Trainer Road. We're super excited to have launched AIFTP detection for everybody. You can try it out now. It's amazing. Go to trainerroad.com and sign up, tell your friends about it. FTP tests are a thing of the past. It's just amazing. So, and I know you're probably thinking, how in the world are you saying that? You did FTP tests live on YouTube, streamed with Chad and Nate and Amber. And I think that's why Chad and I go to counseling. So, um, that part. <laughs> <Never again. laughs> so, yeah, we don't have to do it. It's wonderful. So, go try it out. It's amazing. If you look, we've shared some awesome data on this, but, and you can even see it in the video that you just saw, but, it's improved accuracy against all the other forms of testing in terms of getting you an estimate that's going to give you better training. And that's just fantastic. That's what we're after is giving you better training. And once you use it, then adaptive training takes care of adjusting all of your energy systems independently in between all your workouts. So that way you just get the right workout at the right time. This is a huge step. The majority of you skip tests. We can see it in the data and we don't blame you. And now you don't have to worry about it because it's all taken care of. It's just a really exciting time. Uh, today we have a totally different format, a new one. And if you like it, let us know down in the comments below, like this video, share it with your friends. If you're listening on the podcast, rate it and share it with your friends. That is a huge, huge thing that you can do for us. It helps us. We don't have investors. This is how we grow. So we really appreciate y'all sharing that. We are going to do something that we are maybe calling the abstract, which sounds like a super cool title. And we're just going to talk about the studies that we have been digging into recently, uh, what we've discovered that's interesting, any questions that we have that are, that we're still pursuing with research or I guess with combing through research, not doing the research ourselves. So I have the science of getting faster host, Sarah Laverty, and of course our head coach, Chad Timmerman. Chad, why don't you kick us off? What topics have you been looking into lately? Uh, what have you learned and what questions do you have? Okay. So I'm going to look at a couple studies that are uh, closely related, uh, so so much so that they actually share authors. Not not entirely, but there's a fair amount of overlap, and rightly so. Similar technology, uh, et cetera. And it really, both of them have to do with the subjectivity of individual athletes, individual endurance athletes specifically. And uh, one of the studies I've already talked about on a previous podcast, and I was reading this first study, and it called that to mind. And I look into it, and sure enough, 
some of the same authors, like I just mentioned. And, and how I'll do this is with each study, I'm just kind of going to review the abstract and then I'll tell you what I took from it or what I found interesting about it. And then I'll complete it or round out each one of these with uh, what I'd like to see answered in future research. Or maybe those answers are out there right now. I just haven't found them yet. You either feel free to point me toward them or you know, I'll probably come across them at some point in the future. These are both reasonably new studies. They're both 2020. And I'll start with the first one, which is uh, the author was Bellinger and colleagues, and it's titled Muscle Fiber Typology is Associated with the Incidence of Overreaching in Response to Overload Training. So basically, we're tying muscle fiber type, you know, your preponderance of, are you more fast twitch, more slow twitch, even blend, with, you know, your likelihood of overreaching following an overload stimulus. Hmm. So first, the objective was to identify markers of training stress tied to overreaching following overload training, exactly what I just said. The subjects they used in this case were middle distance runners, but we can certainly extrapolate to cyclists and to, to, to varying degrees. They used male and female athletes. There were 24 total. It's not, not a quite an even split, you know, about 16 men, eight, eight women, I believe. Um, and again, highly trained. So we're talking male VO2 maxes in the 70s, female in the 60s. All the athletes were there in their early 20s, so all, all pups. Now, the design was three weeks of <laughs> sorry, <laughs> three weeks of normal training, so just what they were already doing, consistent across athletes. They all did the same training. Then three weeks of high-volume training, and that consisted of the first week being a 10% increase, second week was 20, third week was 30. So the idea being to overload them, not just to subject them to a, a subtle increase, but to kind of burn them out. And then they followed that immediately with a one-week taper. So we're talking basically seven weeks of training in a row. That taper was a, an exponential reduction, 55% over that week three of the high-volume segment. So, you know, they cut it more than in half. And then they tested and monitored numerous things, both pre, during, post. Amongst them were treadmill time to exhaustion, resting metabolic rate, mm. and then subjective fatigue responses. So, you know, RP, how do you feel prior? How do you feel during? How do you feel after? way after. They also looked at some blood biomarkers. And interestingly, and this is what's shared between the two studies, they look at the, looked at the carnosine levels in, in particular the gastrocnemius, so muscle carnosine levels. And what it do, the, the presence of this protein kind of steers the, the preponderance of muscle fibers. Higher carnosine levels are associated with higher fast twitch fiber composition, lower carnosine levels, slower twitch. And, and the and, gastroc you're talking about, that's the calf muscle. Yes, okay? yes. The, so the, the more superficial calf muscle. So what you see when you, when you, you know, go do a toe raise or a, a heel raise, I guess. Mm -hmm. The findings, uh, the author's findings was basically that half the runners experienced functional overreaching. So it did push them to the point of classifiable overreaching based on a, new, a number of uh, assessments. And the other half were only considered acutely fatigued. So they didn't see any decrease in their time to exhaustion. Um, and that was really the, 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 how they how they classified that. And then the the interesting thing about this is that the higher carnosine level, so the higher fast twitch fiber content, exhibited a greater likelihood for functional overreaching. Whereas if you had lower levels of these carnosine levels, it actually led to improvements with the same training increase. So basically, they did the same plan, they got differing results, and fiber typology was actually used to help them predict this. So their conclusion was that this muscle fiber typology is related to overreaching and performance supercompensation because that's what they saw in the acutely fatigued runners, the ones that got over their fatigue quickly, following increased or overloaded training volume and, of course, a one-week taper. So that's what the authors found, and that is basically the abstract. So if any of that didn't resonate with you, go look at the abstract. It's all contained therein. I wanted to point out one key thing. They didn't say cause. They said it related to, mm -hmm. right? So yeah. once again, this research isn't Just saying a marker for. because you have more fast twitch, 
that means that you will be more easily overtrained. Instead, they're saying that what we witnessed is that those two things were related. However, mm-hmm. the cause is not there. Um, that that hasn't been identified. Yeah. Yep. It's just one marker of. And then interesting. So, which leads me really to to what I took from this. What I found interesting about this is that first off, even in high level athletes, they they respond differently to the same increase in training load. So in some cases that could lead to a sufficient training stimulus. In other cases, it may not be enough. In other cases, it may be too much. Uh, secondly, that that muscle fiber characteristics might actually bear an influence on a number of things. You know, or your training tolerance, your rate of adaptation, rate of recovery. Perception of fatigue was differing, and all this further supports that, well, just tells us what we know, the importance of training individualization. It's, it's hugely important. We're all different animals to some degree, and it further reinforces the, the notion that performance is probably our best, our most accessible proxy or surrogate for all these potentially complex, very often unavailable markers of, and we, I mean, we don't have access to laboratory equipment. We don't have access to even, even packable equipment that, that, you know, some people can't afford, some people can't afford. And even if you can't afford it, do you want to use it all the time? I mean, there's a whole lot of work that goes with that. So, so again, performance can, can be our surrogate, our marker for training tolerance, rate of adaptation, rate of progression, rate of recovery, perception of fatigue, et cetera, all the things. We lost your camera, by the way, Chad. (sighs) I okay. might have to turn it back off. I'll and see on. if I can fix that. Let me wrap this up and I'll sure mess thing. with that. And then yeah. what I'd like to see answered elsewhere or in future research is first in, or actually I only really have one in the more slow twitch predominant athletes is functional overreaching necessary or can a less severe acute fatigue suffice in, in terms of, you know, a sufficient adaptive stimulus. And the point being is that maybe they don't need the same level of overload to achieve improvements, which again, steers us toward training individualization. Let me see yeah, if thank I goodness stop for, my video. Thank goodness for adaptive training, huh? Um, that's, just, that's really interesting. So does this, did they, did the authors at all talk about what they plan to do hereafter with this research or questions that they have or things they want to see discovered? No, no. I mean, they, they, not that I picked up on, sorry, I'm trying to yeah, get my camera no going here and it's seven. No. Cause that's my question, right? Sarah is like, uh, where do you go further beyond this to try to identify something that would be some sort of causation or something else? Right. And what's the applicability? Can we apply it other than what we know already about our training using the feedback we get from like internally, but also from our performance and our post-workout surveys? Is there anything else? It doesn't feel like maybe other than the information we have already, is it supplementing um, our training in any way. Yeah, no doubt. I could see athletes that are listening to this. Hey, you're back, Chad. Hey. Fantastic. Uh, I could see athletes that are listening to this, that maybe they have like a strength training background, right, Chad? And they, they, so they have absolutely, uh, or they have a build where they're, they have carry a lot more, you know, muscle mass. And, mm-hmm. and as a result, um, I, we've had this very question where people have said, because I am more muscular, it does that change how I adapt. And, so. and perfect segue into the, the second highly related study where the, we relate it to high intensity exercise. So this is another 2020 study. A lot of the same authors, this time, one of the co-authors is now the lead author. It's, it's Levens and colleagues, and it's titled muscle fiber typology substantially influences the time to recover from high intensity exercise. So we're not talking strength training, but now we're on the higher, higher intensity end of the spectrum, or actually we're looking at high intensity work. Now, the objective of this one is armed with the knowledge of an athlete's fiber typology, 
find if the more fast twitch predominant athletes experience greater exercise induced both fatigue and delayed recovery than the slow twitch athletes. So in this case, they use 32 recreationally trained men, only men. And I have a quick aside that I'll get to in a second. They were in their early twenties. VO2 maxes were good, but not great. They were in the fifties. Um, recreational activity three to six times a week. So we're talking normal things that you would expect if for anyone who calls himself recreationally active, you know, playing some volleyball, lifting some weights, doing that sort of thing frequently, at least half the week. Um, they were classified as either distinctly fast twitch or distinctly slow twitch. Anyone who was intermediate on the muscle typology spectrum were ousted. They did not meet the inclusion criteria. So uh, back to that aside, uh, all men in this study, and, and I know this has come under a lot of criticism lately or just observation that so many studies are directed only at men. Why are men – why aren't women important? Uh, how can we extrapolate from men to women? Can we? In some cases, yes. In some cases, no, et cetera. And it's a, you know, it's a, it's a valid argument in all cases, but I was listening to a presentation by uh, Louise Burke the other day, and she brought up a point that I hadn't considered, which is that in a lot of cases, now that they are trying to fold more women into studies, they're recognizing one of the limitations and not even limitations, but just the enormous number of variables that are introduced into an already variable mix. Because when you study, you try to limit those variables so that you can study the thing you're trying to suss out. Women present one thing in particular, and that's the menstrual cycle. And with it comes so many complications because where are they in the cycle and, and all the hormonal shifting that goes on with that? Where are they in their lifespan relative to it? Are they pre? Are they post? Are they peri? Um, do they menstruate normally? Are they eumenorrheic? Are they amenorrheic and don't menstruate at all? Are they oligo, which is, you know, they can be sporadic, seldom. And on top of that, any forms of contraception can muddy the water. So, so it's not necessarily we're not trying to study women. It's that studying women is harder than studying men for a number of reasons. So trying to, to tease out certain findings can be trickier. So, and that, that doesn't uh, forgive it. It just explains one of the reasons. Yeah, okay. no doubt. So back to the design of the study, the scientists or the researchers used what's called uh, proton MRS, so proton magnetic resonance spectroscopy, and they did this in place of biopsy. So imagery over barbarism, as I like to put it, <laughs> to elucidate. It's not the, here. We can say that. <laughs> it is barbaric. There's no argument. To elucidate fiber predominance via this, this level of, again, carnosine in the muscle. So this particular protein. And I do want to point out that in this study, they again use the gastrocnemius, which I don't think for cyclists is the best muscle to use. I think it should be the, the all trustworthy vastus lateralis, but you know, it is what it is. They measured some blood biomarkers. They measured max voluntary contraction. So as hard as you can make the muscle contract voluntarily, and they uh, measured electrical muscle activity and found a way to stimulate it, et cetera. So that they could look at that electrical activity and they did all of this following three wind gates. So three 30-second all-out efforts, rest a bit, you know, repeat. And they did so. They monitored all these things at 10 minutes post, 20, 30, 50, 180, 120, and 300. So all the way up to five hours post. And they did two different sets of tests. They separated it you know, with a good washout or really a recovery period. But they each of these athletes had to do this test a couple times and they monitored the same things in the same ways a couple times. And then they also use good old fashioned knee extensions to assess recovery time course. So something that's very straightforward and familiar to most, if not all of us, the findings were that they had the same average power across sprints. So the same mean power in both groups, which also means they did the same amount of work, 
But the fast twitch groups power tanked faster than the slow twitch group. So they tanked 60% over the course of the sprints. Slow twitch only tanked 40%. So fast twitch started higher, plummeted quicker. And, you know, you could argue that the slow twitch was just a little more even across the three sprints. But most importantly is the torque at the max voluntary contraction. So basically, you know, how, how hard they could work, you know, circular motion as, as hard as they could flex that muscle, contract that muscle. It's fully recovered in the slow twitch athletes after only 20 minutes, whereas with the fast twitch athletes, it took them – they measured it at five hours and they still hadn't achieved full recovery of that, that MVC. So Whoa. obviously a very different recovery time course. So their conclusion is that, first off, non-invasive estimation of muscle typology – so again, using imaging rather than biopsy – can predict fatigue and time to recovery following, in this case, all-out exercise, and that it might be a useful tool in individualizing training. Best takeaway I've ever heard. No more yeah. muscle biopsies. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So so leading me to what I took from this, what I find interesting about this, again, for the win, <laughs> imaging over tissue sampling to suss out you know, fiber composition. So and ask me anything that furthers this trend is encouraging. And it's encouraging not just for the reasons – you might think, but they're included. It's unreasonable in high-level athletes. They're not going to allow you to puncture their muscles at various times throughout the year or, or during a study, or maybe at all ever. It's unpleasant for everybody. You know, maybe there's that one weirdo out there who really likes to have their muscle punctured, but uh, I, don't, I don't think anybody enjoys that. And it's fraught with limitations. I talked about this a couple weeks ago where they took biopsies in the same muscle only a couple centimeters apart and measured different levels of particular things. Some had consistency. Some did not. Hmm. And then again, the, the, another interest point of interest or another thing that I took from this is that, that the type of muscle you're packing around can indeed influence numerous aspects of your training, your adaptation, your performance, likelihood of injury, uh, quality of recovery, how will you sleep, how will you metabolize food, frequency of illness, all of these things are overreaching related. And were this to lead to consumer accessible fiber type estimating devices, this could be yet another set of data points that could be fed into adaptive training. It's not, we wouldn't necessarily base training on it, but it could mm -hmm. certain, we uh, at trainer road could certainly learn from it and athletes it'd in general. Yeah, yeah that'd be interesting. Mm -hmm. We lost your camera again, Chad. Uh, that day. Um, okay. Let me, let me wrap this up and I'll mess with it while cool. dives deep. <laughs> Sounds good. Okay. First, uh, so, so, uh, what I'd like to see elsewhere, maybe it's in existing research or future research is what about those athletes who are in the middle? What about the ones with more even splits in their fiber types? You know, the, the intermediate muscle typology set. If you're neither predominantly fast twitch or slow twitch, does this mean that any form of training is a safe bet, that no form of training is optimal? <laughs> <laughs> These questions need to be asked. Yeah. And I just asked them, so they need to be addressed. Secondly, <laughs> do carnosine levels or really fiber typologies in one muscle group carry to related muscle groups? So for instance, if I have a high preponderance of fast twitch in my calves, does this correlate with my quads? Because if it doesn't, this could lead to greater complexity between stress accommodation and again, recovery rates, workout formats, how long you load in a cycle, recovery modifications necessary based on the type of work you did, et cetera. I was just thinking of like the dad calves that exist. Like for some reason, dads wearing cargo shorts and new balances have these just absolutely massive gastrocs and they've never once, meanwhile, gym rats are doing like, you know, calf raises nonstop in the gym and they can't ever get to that. But that's a good point, Chad, is that that muscle in particular seems like perhaps, I don't know if problematic, uh, a problematic proxy, but, but certainly one that seems like it has more predominance of 
fast twitch there and, and maybe that changes things. I don't know, but super interesting. I'd also be curious to see like how, like the sub and this would be really tough to do, but the substrate utilization of those fibers when they were talking about the, have, you know, the, the rapid fatigue that they were experiencing in your back chat. It's good. Um, the rapid fatigue that they were experiencing and then how it was coming back, like, you know, what were they actually processing there? Um, it'd be really interesting because you've talked before about how all of us to a certain extent have some more than others have these intermediate fibers that with training and over time, proper endurance training, we end up transitioning those or they're, or at least they're, they're more capable at operating like those, Mm -hmm. those slower twitch fibers. Yeah. They pick up Um, characteristics of the other fibers. Yeah. Yeah. Super fascinating. Mm -hmm. And how does that then apply to say triathletes is, am I right in saying Chad that your upper body has more slow twitch fibers and your lower body? Is that? Uh, I honestly don't know. I, I know there are different muscles exhibit different characteristics. For instance, we're talking about those low leg muscles and your gastrocnemius is typically more mm-hmm. fast twitch, whereas the underlying soleus is predominantly more slow twitch. As far as the difference between upper and lower body, I, I think you're right. That is ringing some bells. So, yeah. Right. Interesting. So, yeah. How does that apply then Again. to multi-sport athletes? It's- yeah. Further complexity. Mm-hmm. No doubt. No doubt. We just need uh, performance. Sarah, uh, how about, how about you and, and go ahead and bring your mic as close as you can to you. Um, but for you, what, uh, what studies have you been looking into recently? Yeah, I've been looking into, um, carbohydrate periodization. Um, and that's kind of opened a can of worms really, uh, with regards to energy availability and the ketogenic diet. So if I start with Carbohydrate periodization is the concept of undertaking selected training uh, sessions with restricted carbohydrate availability. So we all know, in some ways, it seems pretty counterintuitive because we all know that um, our best performance is done with um, a large supply of carbohydrate available. However, it is thought that periodic carbohydrate restriction um, is possibly a way to amplify the acute response to endurance training that we already have. So endurance training leads to mitochondrial biogenesis, um, which ultimately increases the aerobic performance capacity of our skeletal muscles. It's thought then that if we... Basically, if um, we restrict the carbohydrates, there's something called AMPK, which is the uh, an enzyme in our muscles, and that detects the the low carbohydrate availability, and then subsequently uh, causes a cascade of um, reactions and um, signaling signaling molecules to increase mitochondrial biogenesis. It's important, though, to kind of distinguish the difference between uh, periodic carbohydrate restriction and the keto- a long-term low-carbohydrate, high-fat diet. Um, so uh, the theory behind, if we were to separate them, the theory behind a low-carbohydrate, high-fat diet is that we are aiming to change the substrate that we use during exercise. So we're trying to, or the theory is that you're trying to increase your reliance on fat as opposed to, um, which is an infinite fuel source as opposed to using our limited fuel source, which would be carbohydrates. The 
although that makes sense theoretically and mechanistically, um, we have like um, the same researcher that Chad uh, mentioned, Dr. Louise Burke, who's um, just a badass in, in the field of research, is um, just producing so much information around this and has spent a lot of time diving into this subject. But she has um, studied in mostly elite race walkers. Um, she found in one particular study, she found that elite athletes um, can adapt to a low carbohydrate, high fat diet within five to six days, which is wow. Yeah. In comparison, it was previously understood that that would take perhaps months um, or weeks to months to adapt to that. However, they were able to increase their fat utilization during exercise and that um, ultimately, um, you know, they shifted their substrate utilization away from using the finite source, um, which is carbohydrates. However, this was associated with a 5 to 8% increase in oxygen cost, um, making it a less efficient um, fuel source. And the fascinating thing about this study was not only was it less efficient, once they restored uh, their glycogen levels, so they repleted, they carb-loaded, they still weren't able to use um, carbohydrate at the rates uh, in comparison to the athletes that were continuously consuming high-carbohydrate, low-fat diet. It was uh, speculated that could be due to a blunted um, capacity for carbohydrate oxidation, but it kind of it allows us to realize that even though this makes theoretical sense, it makes sense to um, use a source of fuel that is infinite, but it doesn't translate to our performance. On the other hand, carbohydrate periodization is not trying to change that substrate that we're using for exercise. The aim is to enhance the already the adaptations that we already have from endurance training, which is um, inducing mitochondrial biogenesis. So how is carbohydrate periodization proposed to induce uh, mitochondrial biogenesis? As we explained, that's the um, signaling um, seems to be prompted. And we can do that. Uh, we can achieve that glycogen depletion in many ways um, that we're all familiar with, which would be twice a day training, sleeping low, so going to bed after having done a uh, a training session that depletes our glycogen and then we perhaps eat a high fat, low carbohydrate diet uh, meal after that. Uh, fasted training, so waking up in the morning um, without eating anything and then going out on the bike um, or recover low. So after your training session, um, you don't consume carbohydrates or you could do an amalgamation of all four of them. So Dr. James Martin and colleagues, um, they explored what is the, the, the threshold for at what point, because obviously it's quite a narrow, we don't want to deplete our glycogen stores so much so that it impairs uh, our training intensity and recovery, but we want to be able to induce the cell signaling. So they found that 
somewhere between the levels of, um, and this is, it's hard to conceptualize without um, comparing. So we'll compare in a second, but um, they found that 250 millimoles per kilogram to 300 millimoles per kilogram is where we might be able to um, instigate some of that cell signaling. However, this is where it gets tricky. If you go beyond, if you restore your glycogen levels to 500 millimoles, that can uh, attenuate some of the potential signaling effects. So, and then if you go below 200 millimoles, that's where it becomes implicative for your training intensity. So it, Wow. It's you want to set there's such a narrow range and without knowing. So we know that some individual studies have indicated that that narrow range can elicit some muscular adaptations. But do we know if that translates into performance? So that's where um I might butcher their names here, um, but I did try and look it up on Google how to pronounce these. Um, so <laughs> Naibo and Gijil, um, and also probably with an accent, that's not going to come across very well. But um, <laughs> so with the, they performed a meta-analysis looking at this specifically, whether the muscular adaptations that we're, we're seeing in these individual studies where um, the mitochondrial biogenesis is um, instigated with this carbohydrate restriction, does that translate into performance in endurance athletes? And what they found was, and I'm not going to do as well job as, uh, as good a job as Chad at not giving away the, um, I'm giving it all away basically. Um, <laughs> so they found that it doesn't translate into uh, performance enhancements even though they found that in many of the studies that they looked at. So a meta-analysis is when you're looking at a collection of studies um, diving into one specific topic and you're able to identify general trends. So in some of the studies, they did find that the muscular adaptations were occurring, um, but it wasn't translating into performance. So the questions that I have, and um, I'm sure many of the researchers have is why, why doesn't that translate into performance then in these trained athletes? And there's some uh, theories that might uh, hold true, which would be um, if your training is already uh, exploiting the adaptive response of um, endurance training, then an additive effect of carbohydrate restriction might not be, you're kind of hitting that ceiling already. Um, the, the the freeway already is full of cars moving it at the rate. You can't pack it full. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then um, perhaps endurance athletes, we, um, in the science of getting faster podcast, we talked with Dr. Mark Harris and Dr. Podligar about at this point, we can't always match in long endurance uh, events or training. We can't always and match the requirements of our, um, the energy requirements of those events. And so we probably are already adapted to um, glycogen depletion. And therefore adding that in is, is not, uh, it's like 
just adding more of the same training stimulus. It's not um, causing an additive effect, which then on the other hand might suggest that if you are in a period of low training stress or low training stimulus, then maybe um, there's potential to include it in um, your training strategy or your nutrition protocol. Um, But as we mentioned before, that narrow um, window or is that, yeah, a narrow window of opportunity almost like you can't, you don't want to go too far below. You don't want to go too far above. And in these studies, they're using muscle biopsies and we can't just stick a needle in our legs before in the morning to check how much glycogen we have already. So (laughs) um, in some of that way, then it's, it's, it's almost we need to weigh up the risk benefit, and if the ben- if that meta analysis is indicating that perhaps it's not translating into performance in ways that we the mechanisms might suggest, then it might just uh, come with a lot more side effects than um, it's worth, which is also worth considering because we know that um, there are implications um, to low carbohydrate, um, training with low carbohydrate, but that sometimes comes hand in hand with low energy availability, which, um, over the long haul, we want to be really careful to avoid, um, because of the performance and training and health implications, um, which leads me to some other studies that are fascinating in regards to is carbohydrate restriction or is calorie restriction more implicative of our health Mm. and performance? Um, And there's a study by James Martin and colleagues. They looked at whether carbohydrate restriction, um, one, whether it has the, whether it induces a cellular um, signaling response, um, but also does how does that affect bone resorption? So how our bone breaks down. Um, They were looking at runners, so there's clearly more of an impact um, with sports that have an impact. Um, But they found that carbohydrate restriction was more implicative than uh, calorie restriction. So... Mm our calories from carbohydrates are important for uh, our health basically. Um, And they also found that there was no benefit to um, the cell signaling response either. Um, Interesting. Mm -hmm. And likewise, Dr. Burke and colleagues, um, they also found the same thing with regards to the iron um, stress response and immune response, um, finding that, it was the car is the calories from carbohydrates that are most important um, with regards to our health in response to um, straining training stress. Um, mm. So yeah, so there's a lot to in from my um, observation of the studies and the current data, and from I'm sure we've all experienced some symptoms of low energy availability, low carbohydrate availability. It seems like too big a risk for me to want to experiment with this. Um, and I would rather feel good for my training. <laughs> yeah. Th- endurance athletes are like a rare breed. 
you know, you hear contextually, it's very different when you hear somebody like, you know, Joe Rogan talking about this on his podcast to a very general audience. And they're talking about carbohydrate periodization, or they're talking, talking about restriction of one way or another versus in, like, that's a great point that I hadn't thought of. Perhaps endurance athletes are constantly putting themselves in that situation because what is it? It's like 180 Watts or something. If you maintain an average of 180 Watts, you're burning like over you're burning 400 calories an hour. Yeah. If you're burning 400 calories an hour, that's pretty, you're taking in, what is that somewhere around like you're still taking in quite a lot of carbs of high, or grams of carbs every hour to be able to actually fuel that work. Yeah. You know, we have this concept. There are probably a lot of people listening to this that during their recovery rides are riding over 200 watts or not recovery, but their endurance days. And in those days, you're still not finishing topped off, most likely, right. with what you're taking in. So we might always, we might already be doing that, but there's just no guarantee that we fall within that, that magic bandwidth. That's right. It's risky. And then the implications after that is, if you're training and you have workouts every day or every other day or whatever it is, and you have this training plan that you're trying to follow, you could very well just be putting yourself deeper in a hole unnecessarily by trying to restrict making every workout a little bit more difficult to be able to perform or be able to adapt from, um, and get those sort of benefits. Right. Yeah, just so risky. it's not just, different. sorry, Chad. Oh no, I just, just going to point out the obvious different athletes have different requirements, different humans have different requirements and endurance athletes have a greater reliance, a greater need for carbohydrate I mean, strength athletes, you know, greater need and reliance for protein. I mean, it's just consider the work that we have to perform considering the workload and, and the tolls that it takes on the body and nourish accordingly. Right. It's not just one. I think what I am learning with regards to this topic we can't just look at one mechanism within the body. We have to look at Ever. we're a whole multi-system organism and we have to look at even the impact of um, feeling on our motivation and our, our brain. Like we, you can perhaps maximize the adaptations from one training session, but how does that stack up within the, the week or the month is um, probably more important to to zoom out on. Well, in that last study yeah. that you mentioned, the, the last Louis Burke study, uh, that was included in the the presentation that I just listened to. And she did touch on the fact that both low energy availability and carbohydrate restriction, whether it is intentional or not, leads to, I think, increased levels of hepcidin, which is a hormone that stimulates or it has an effect on your iron, both uh, production and utilization. So in any case, this is just something that we haven't even talked about. We haven't even touched on. It's yet another realm for concern, another area that where if we shortchange ourselves nutritionally and carbohydrates specifically, but energy in general, we suffer consequences that we're not even considering. And how important is iron and iron levels for endurance athletes, for female endurance athletes especially? Yeah, and how complicated that gets when you're talking about the cycle and individuality is at, an, at all time highs, not really, but it's extremely high when you're talking about that, right? Mm. Especially when you introduce contraception and the influence that it has on top of that. So, yeah, quite complicated. Um, cool. Sarah, thanks. Yeah. Appreciate you well sharing that. Thanks. 
um, that also this is kind of like a teaser for things that we may be discussing on the Science of Getting Faster podcast. <laughs> and on that note, it's my turn in the section that I'm going to use. I'm going to really keep this one short because on Monday of this week or of next week, silly me, on Monday of next week, you're going to be getting a YouTube video where I break this down in much greater depth in our Cycling Science Explained series that we post up there on YouTube. It's a really fun video. It's on altitude training. Um, this is one where it's so in Sarah had mentioned that she was looking at a review. There are many different formats of scientific research that's published. Um, in some cases, uh, there's some cut that they sometimes are called contrasting perspectives or scientific argumentations, but basically what it's like a form of a review where researchers will look at existing evidence on a topic and take a stance, so to speak. And they'll say, this is our belief about a specific topic. And here is proof within the scientific research to back that up. And typically what it does is it targets specific researchers or their body of research or a specific study. And then it's the other researchers turn to then defend themselves. And then to say, actually, this is what the science says from our perspective. And this happened with altitude training. And I found this one really interesting. And I've been looking at studies on altitude training since the Tour de France this year, uh, when whispers uh, were coming from the camp of Matthew Vanderpool and particularly that perhaps his subpar performance, which... I mean, I don't want to call it subpar because it's so far ahead of what anything I could do. But for Matthew Vanderpool's standards, uh, it was subpar that perhaps it was due to an altitude training block that was either done incorrectly, placed too close to uh, to the tour, um, just not taken into context appropriately, something. But the whisperings were that that was the cause. Uh, and in looking into it, I found some really surprising things. And I'm not going to go into the surprising things. You're going to have to watch the video on Monday. So you'll have to see that. But that said, I did want to talk about a topic uh, specifically. Nate has mentioned this with himself, individuals, all of you listening to the podcast, and you submit your questions at trainerroad.com slash podcast, which, by the way, please do that uh, this week if you have any training questions. When you do that, I've seen quite a few athletes say, hey, why is it that when I go back down to sea level after being at elevation, or I go back down to a lower elevation, I, I just my performance is really bad. And not only my performance is bad, but I just, I don't feel good on the bike. And it's interesting. And this is at this point kind of theoretical, like we heard from Sarah here, there are mechanisms that exist within the body and take place and we can identify those and see how they work. But that doesn't always necessarily mean that the logical assumption from that mechanism ends up coming true, right? Uh, just because one thing happens in the body, that doesn't necessarily mean that the logical conclusion of affecting our performance in a specific way actually happens. And this is an interesting one that they talk about. So in the study hypoxic training, or I, and this is the scientific uh, argumentation here, or the contrasting perspective by Seidman and Dempsey, it says hypoxic training is not beneficial in elite athletes. And they go about talking about all the different reasons why they believe that it is not in the science and the research backs it up. But this is interesting. So they're talking about athletes that are living high and training high. And they're talking about the main goal of altitude training, which is increase in red blood cell volume that happens when, when that takes place. Uh, and when they say this, they say that it can be, uh, they say altitude exposure induces tonic chemoreflex activation that increases muscle sympathetic nerve activity and pulmonary ventilation. These responses promote vasoconstriction and may thereby limit perfusion to the locomotor musculature. In other words, having exposure to altitude and this, even though you're getting this increase in red blood cell uh, volume that you're having, 
what it can do is it can increase vasoconstriction when you're talking about to the musculature, to the things that actually make you go fast on the bike. They say chemoreflex activation transiently persists after return to sea level and can hence not only impair training during live high, train high, but also performance in ensuing competitions if sufficient washout time is provided. And this is a really interesting part in the research that they look at. There doesn't seem to be a whole lot of research going into identifying the specific time frame because it seems so variable when people are talking about when do I finish my altitude block or when do I come back down to low elevation so that I can time it with my event. And specifically looking at the context of all of us that are preparing for an event or somebody here that's just looking to get increases in performance and when you can expect to have normal training again. Uh, in other words, it's complicated and it doesn't seem to be something that's really well defined. Uh, I, I would love to see more research on this. We're just now getting to the point where we have these hypobaric, um, uh, or these, these hypoxic facilities basically where it can be a building, a hotel, anything like that. And the entire building itself has altered oxygen levels within it. Um, and as a result, you can simulate altitude, not just in a lab, but perhaps in more livable and normal circumstances for, for athletes. And that's getting a bit more common. It would be fantastic to see research going into trying to time the benefits and figure out, uh, and this is a bit of a spoiler alert, why it doesn't seem to work for everybody with altitude training. So it's really interesting. So Simon and Dempsey, hypoxic training is not beneficial in elite athletes. And then Malay and Brocherie did the one where they say hypoxic training is beneficial in elite athletes. And for tons of info on that, stay tuned to our video that we'll have publishing on Monday. And you can go look up altitude training on YouTube and you'll be able to find it with trainer road. It's going to be a good one. So super interesting topics. Um, I'm, I'm curious to, to, there's, there's a whole lot of assumptions baked in, or there's a whole lot of complications baked into carrying out altitude training studies as well. Right. When you're talking about blinding or when you're talking about placebo, I mean, it's really tough to do. <laughs> Athletes yeah. can tell really quick. You know? But I also find with those studies, um, they can be really helpful too with, uh, cause it's mostly elite athletes that are, um, heading to these altitude camps. So it's very much applicable to real life performance, uh, situations. So there is the, the issue of not being able to control for everything, but sometimes that then allows you to apply them to, um, to real life more easily. Mm -hmm. I think you could blind athletes pretty well if you use something like an altitude house or an altitude hotel. I mean, just put them in two different, two different structures and don't tell them which one's the one. I mean, yeah, there's there's there probably going to be some tells. Yeah, it, that, that at least lends itself to blinding it. Yeah, it, it would certainly be closer than just not trying, right, Chad? Uh, or to just blind being it. at um, 7,000 feet and trying to deny it. <laughs> but if you're all at the same altitude, <laughs> staying in different houses, maybe, maybe so. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. One of the, one of the, I can't remember which study, cause there are many studies referenced within these reviews. One of the studies they were talking about, they, they had intended to, um, use simulated altitude or simulate altitude by actually using a mask, um, that they were putting onto the athletes when they were doing training. And this was on an ergometer. And when they were doing this, like, you know, all the athletes were instantly like, like, Hey, I'm the restricted one. Like I can tell, like, <laughs> like, like, you know, that I, I live on oxygen and my relationship with oxygen is so well established. So they did report the fact that the blinding didn't seem effective as the athletes that they had were well-trained and well-accustomed to training under normal circumstances. and mm -hmm. can tell very quickly when they're like, Hey, 
you just sucked all the oxygen out of the room, man. I can tell. So, um, yeah, it really is tricky. Uh, but it's, it's interesting. Just the same. It's also, uh, altitude studies and looking at how you respond to them are almost infinitely complex because each person adapts to training slightly differently back to bringing this full circle back to what you were talking about, Chad, in the beginning with yours, each person adapts differently. And that's really the, always the hard part about studies with training interventions and seeing which one is more effective you really would have to operate on such a massive scale to be able mm-hmm. to ward out individual variants. But then if you're operating at that scale, how are you controlling for all of the variables that you would need to control for yeah, in order to get, you know, good input? Yeah, and I'm sure there's a link between muscle fiber typology and response to altitude training. If there aren't studies out oh, there, yeah. it's at least been, you know, mentioned. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. And even well, cool. Thanks. I think- thanks. Oh yeah. Sorry. There has to be, uh, if we're intersecting everything, like between if you're not healthy or if you're not mm. feeling correctly, that's got to impact. It's just an additional stress. It's got to impact. So they're all related, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no doubt. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, this uh, the abstract, that sounds very dramatic to call it such. But if you enjoyed this episode, let us know. And if you want us to do more of them, we would be happy to. We love sharing the research that we're looking into. And also, if you're just joining us late here, we released AI FTP detection for everybody on Trainer Road. You can use it now. It's no longer in early access. It just works. So anytime you go onto Trainer Road and you have a ramp test scheduled, <clears throat> you'll see a button there that says you use AI FTP detection instead. Or you can just go to your account uh, page and then you'll be able to right next to your FTP. Use that to calculate your FTP with AI FTP detection. It looks at all your rides outside, inside, and you don't even have to do all out efforts. It's super cool. That's why ours is different than anything that exists out there. We've used ML to be able to detect kind of like patterns that help our system recognize when you're experiencing FTP improvement, even if you're just in the base phase and not even doing threshold efforts. Uh, it's super, super cool, uh, leading edge stuff. And we have, and all the feedback that we've gotten from the early access period, our team's already working hard on, on next rounds of improvements to this, to be able to build for that. It's really exciting. So thanks to our team here at trainer road. Once again, we have no investors. If you want to support us in driving forward and changing how people train, sign up for trainerroad.com. That would be huge. And if you're already signed up, please share it with other people, encourage them to listen to our podcast, encourage them to sign up for trainer road. That's how we grow. Uh, With that said, thanks, everybody. We'll talk to you next week.